0: If you live in Seattle, or you've visited Seattle, chances are you've been to the oldest part of town.
1: Pioneer Square was the origin place of urban Seattle.
0: This again is CrossCut's editor-at-large, Knut Berger, who you met in the last episode.
1: It was the first neighborhood, and virtually all of it had burned down in the Great Fire of 1889. And then virtually all of it had been rebuilt in the next few years, between 1889 and the early 1890s. The Pioneer Square we know now was created.
2: It's where the term Skid Row was originated.
0: And this is Peter Steinbrook, who you met in the last episode, too.
2: Because that's where the logs were skidded down the hill of Yesler, from the lake to the Elliott Bay and to the mill, the Yesler's Mill.
0: So you might have heard of the term skid row or maybe skid road. Like Peter said, it's often thought that the phrase was born out of an actual road that early Seattle loggers used to slide or skid their timber down. But at some point during the depression, so the story goes, it started being used both in and beyond the Pacific Northwest to describe urban areas that had fallen on hard times, which is what happened with Pioneer Square.
1: Eventually, downtown and the business community moved north. And so it it became more uh, dilapidated and buildings were ignored. They were low-income housing for many largely unemployed workers and folks living on the streets.
2: Business, real estate, and merchants saw Pioneer Square as a derelict place and it became associated with down and outers. People would sit on benches all day and drink wine out of a paper bag, you know, and things like that. And um, so many upper floors were empty also They had lost their, you know, their tenancies and they were mostly warehouse and storage buildings on the upper floors with bars and retail on the street level. So,
0: by the 1960s, you had these empty floors and these old brick buildings that were kind of getting grimy and going to seed. It was a rough part of town, and some people were starting to really speak up about it, including, for instance, a Seattle Times columnist, Don Duncan. He wrote, The only place where sunshine really drenches the skid road is where a building has been leveled and a parking lot put in. Knut read the article aloud to me recently. Duncan goes on.
1: There is again talk of urban renewal in the area. As usual, well-meaning voices cry out about preserving our history. Perhaps we should have preserved the packing crate hovels of our Hooverville, too. Um, Skid Road occupies fine flat land close to the water. You don't huff and puff on its streets. You just feel creepy as if you should have brought along a disinfectant. Wow. <laughs> oh wow! So this is quite
2: like quite an indictment, huh? With uh, the, all, all those adjectives and what's the date of that article? Oh yeah, by the way? Um, mm-hmm.
0: August twenty third, nineteen sixty
2: six. Yeah. So if you put yourself back in that time, uh, urban flight—you know—to the suburbs, um, and a huge concern that cities were losing, you know, their centers at the time mm-hmm. due to economic decline and this kind of and blight. Mm-hmm. Right. And th- there's no question that the, n- the neighborhood was blighted. I mean, whatever that term means. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, th- that was probably seen as a really, you know, decrepit, horrible
3: old place that you didn't want to go to.
0: How uh, was the area in general identified? I mean, Skid how do people think of Pioneer Square? And- Skid
3: Road and don't go down there.
0: Mm-hmm. This is Peter's dad, Victor Steinbrook, in an oral history interview I found deep in the archives of the Seattle Public Library. It was recorded in late 1984, a few months before he passed away, in early 1985. It sounds like Victor knew exactly what folks like Don Duncan thought of Pioneer Square at the time. And the reason Knute and Peter and I all took a look at that column again was because Victor had specifically cut it out and carefully stored it in one of the many boxes the Steinbrook family recently discovered in the cellar of Victor's Eastlake home. But Victor didn't keep Duncan's clipping because he agreed with it. He actually vehemently disagreed with it, along with basically all of the opinions and plans for what was then called urban renewal.
3: We're determined to uh, take advantage of urban renewal as a real estate bonanza.
0: And the plans? There were a lot of them.
1: This is a place that's being eyed by folks interested in urban renewal as a place they could tear down, as a place where they could build highways through, as a place where literally they could build, they could tear it down and put in these vast parking lots, both on the ground and also some of the plans show these you know, high rise parking lots. And Victor saw the danger of that.
0: Remember last episode when I asked you to imagine Seattle without all of the iconic parts of it, the parts that so many of us now think of as quintessential Seattle? In the 1960s, a lot of what's now assumed to be quintessential was about to be demolished.
1: Certainly with Pioneer Square and Skid Road, First Avenue, and the Pike Place Market, there were plans, multiple plans, to utterly destroy them. I mean, bulldoze them, pave them over. And so there's this huge legacy that we don't think about which is what the city would look like if Victor hadn't stopped the wrecking ball and the bulldozers and drummed up support across the city.
3: Getting sketches, photographs, uh, maps out, and getting people to look at what was there.
0: Victor, remember, was one of the designers of the Space Needle, a kind of harbinger of the future. And here he was, joining an effort to preserve the past.
3: I didn't know what would happen, but I just felt that that was the, the, the way to go, and uh, some of us met together and decided on tactics and things, pretty much with a concern for uh, civic values, for this being a better city if we knew more about our past and had more respect for our, our past through our architecture.
0: I'm Sarah Bernard, and this is CrossCut Reports. Today, the story of Pioneer Square. How Seattle's oldest neighborhood went from blighted to beloved. And how one Seattle professor went from architect to activist. Victor Steinbrook wasn't the only person who stopped that wrecking ball, certainly. But he did a lot. And his relentless dedication to that effort is so clear in all these documents and sketches and letters he held onto for so long. But for Victor, historical preservation was never just about the architecture. Never just about the city. It was also about the people in it.
2: Okay, let's take a look at another box. So, what's what's this here? Let's see. You never know what you're going to find here. You know, you just
0: you yeah. browse here in Peter Steinbrook's apartment, digging through his dad's boxes. You get the sense that Victor had really strong beliefs, especially about urban development and what a city should be, and shouldn't be. So much of what he kept in his papers involved these kind of civic battles.
2: This is this is a kind of telling piece that I recall was done on the Westlake battle.
0: In fact, Victor even kept several Manila folders he called civic battles.
1: There's um, a couple of files in here labeled civic battles,
0: which Knut Berger made sure to show me. All oh, right,
1: <laughs> and I brought those for you. Great. They're full of clippings. <laughs> okay, and, here's the- and these
0: battles often had a lot to do with the belief that cities that develop organically are not only more unique and beautiful than cities designed according to some big vision, but more equitable for the people who live there. That seems to be a big part of his life's work. And one of his greatest enemies in that work was a collection of downtown business interests that called itself the Central Association. The association put out a big redevelopment proposal called the Seattle Central Business District Plan that the city council adopted in November 1963. The plan would have torn through the International District and Pioneer Square and Pike Place Market with a bunch of freeways and parking lots to fit tens of thousands of cars. A copy of that proposal, on beige and cream-colored cardstock, was stashed in Victor's papers. I pointed it out to Peter. Uh, speaking of which, there's a picture of um, the Seattle Central Business District plan, hmm. which has this picture oh, wow. of um, oh, the gosh. proposed freeway ring roads circling the whole downtown. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... Wow.
2: Yeah. Wow. And linking up with the Alaska Way or... A- yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that something...
0: This plan from 1963 was one of a number of similar plans in Seattle and across the country.
4: Poverty makes a stamp upon the landscape and upon the spirit.
0: There was a federal program in place at the time known as Urban Renewal, which, in the span of a couple decades, poured billions of dollars into cities nationwide, ostensibly to invest in so-called blighted areas and combat so-called urban decay.
4: Neglect becomes decay. Decay becomes despair.
0: The stated goal was to replace this blight with improved infrastructure and affordable housing. But as many studies have since shown, it tended to instead perpetuate racism and displacement.
1: Urban renewal had displaced the poor and destroyed existing communities in the name of progress. It really fractured the community. Some scholars suggest that this was um, by design. The government was going to pay for your urban renewal plan, and so you got a bunch of suits in a room, created a plan, and they created it so that the government would fund it. And the government liked freeways, and they liked you know, they liked high-rises. High and so if you said, well, we're just going to mow this blight, that was the word they would call an area blighted, and that would trigger this ability to do renewal. But renewal was the sort of blank slate approach generally. As opposed to, like, how can we improve what we have and then add to it?
0: The central business district plan we found in Victor's files seemed to take that blank slate approach.
2: And what was the rationale here for this? What to improve access to downtown shopping shopping opportunities or I guess workers uh, improve? Yeah, it, it says right at the beginning improves accessibility to the key to downtown's future growth. Oh boy. <laughs> Uh, Downtown must accommodate 120,000 more vehicles a day by 1985 as compared to 65,000 presently. So, yeah, there you go. There's the rationale. Mm -hmm.
1: They uh, had plan after plan of uh, how this was going to occur, particularly from, you know, the early 1960s to the early 1970s. There was a decade there where... Seattle was going to be Los Angelesized, And that was seen by planners as the thing of the future. That's the way to build a city now.
3: The truly dynamic American cities are those that are coming to grips with the problem of outmoded structures. Increasingly, we are seeing large-scale demolition as the first step in building modern cities.
1: And these, these plans were very, they were designed and built by the downtown business community. And there was really little sense of who's living downtown, why are they there, where do they need to be housed. It wasn't a holistic kind of view, except from a business perspective.
4: Getting needed
3: space in our cities for modern structures is the only way to meet the competitive force of growing
4: suburban strength.
0: So how did Victor, a key designer of the Space Needle, that Eiffel Tower of the Space Age, get pulled into a battle to preserve the past. Well, it all started well before the Space Needle, in the 50s, when Victor put together his own plan for Pioneer Square.
1: In the mid-1950s, Victor did, uh, he won a prize. It was a contest run by the Junior Chamber of Commerce. And his was kind of a, a development a renewal concept centered around well, what they called Pioneer Plaza, which is essentially the square, the pergola, the totem poles, the blocks immediately surrounding uh, the square. It won a it won a prize. And it involved a sort of small survey that he did of the buildings in that area. Nobody really looked at it from a historic preservation standpoint. So this is 1954, 55. Um, and of course the city didn't do anything with the plan.
0: And that might be because the whole idea of historic preservation in Seattle was just being born at the time.
1: Seattle was believed to not have any history.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, in the 1950s, Seattle was barely 100 years old. And literally, we had gone from log cabins to the space age. So when you're thinking about the city of Seattle, and I'm talking about the, the white settlement of Seattle, 100 years of history, you know, if somebody from New York or Philadelphia or New Orleans or whatnot. I mean, that's like, well, 100 years is nothing. And there were a lot of people here who thought the same, that everything here was disposable. There's actually articles in the Seattle Times that Victor clipped out, some of which Victor wrote. But, you know, is Seattle history worth preserving? Is their history worth preserving? Question, you know. And I think, You know, Victor certainly came down on the side of that it's essential. You know, he was not anti-change. You know, he was anti, I think you could probably say he was anti-freeway and he was anti-big development, big urban developments that were driven by business Mm -hmm. because he wanted a more inclusive map. And I think he saw preservation in Seattle as part of that. If he could change that attitude of we're a city with a bl- that's a blank slate and disposable to a city where we have character, we have things that we value that have nothing to do with profit, mm-hmm. if we have views we want to protect, if we have streetscapes, if we have lively, vibrant communities of the grassroots folks, you know, Let's protect these things. And we can We can also grow as a city. We can also do all these other, you know, other things. And that gets back to this idea that urban renewal didn't mean erasing everything. And he comes back to this time and again in his editorials or his um, position papers that he writes. Renewal has to mean re- genuine renewal. It has to mean opening up opportunities for people. It has to mean giving people hope, giving people a life, giving them shelter, uh, giving them a place in your community.
3: Whenever I wrote something about Pioneer Square, I always expressed concern about those people and and not pushing them out, uh, having a place for them. And the humble and fragile nature of of, uh, the architecture is not nearly as important as what's going on in the building.
0: In other words, the point for Victor was not just that all these urban renewal plans ignored the city's history. They ignored people, the people who lived here.
1: I think there was a, a, a real sense of kind of humanity at the center of his values. He makes a comment in one of his papers, he's criticizing one of the downtown plans.
0: Knut found this paper in the files. It's a few typewritten pages with the title Historic Preservation Viewed with Alarm. Victor writes, Planners and architects have the knowledge and the power to be the strongest force for conservation of our environmental heritage. He goes on, Unfortunately, except for a very small minority, we do not take the trouble to work with the past. There is not the motivation to do so.
1: And his last line is, Unfor- you know, unfortunately, architects think they can improve mm-hmm. anything. <laughs> and I think Victor uh, didn't believe that. Mm-hmm. You know, he believed that there was something really vital and organic in how communities developed that, that was really important to a city.
0: And he detailed that belief in handwritten notes to himself.
1: Like with Pioneer Square... I mean, he even makes, I, in one of his notebooks, he's, he makes lists of, he's, he says, look, it's not just the square, it's the context. Hmm. So, you know, when it comes to the hawk shops, when it comes to the taverns, when it comes to the, these hangouts, we have to protect them too.
0: I guess I don't really know exactly how Victor came to these kinds of convictions, or more importantly, why he held on to them so tightly. We just have these documents and what his son Peter passes on, and a few oral histories. Like Victor told an interviewer once, he has fond memories of going down to Pioneer Square with his father as a kid.
3: It probably started a long time ago when I came down here with my father uh, after working with him in the garage. I came down at midnight and had a late supper in the Busy Bee Cafe and saw workers and street people. and. Then when I was going through high school, coming down here and listening to soapbox orators and, and visiting pawn shops and, and things of that sort, and I thought it was that, of being one of the most interesting places for a spectrum of the, of the society of our city. I think for me, it began then.
0: And for Peter, it seems his appreciation for this city and for his dad's beliefs and approach to things, that also started from a very young age. More on that after the break.
4: Public safety, reproductive rights, the arts, education, election security. These are the issues at the heart of our civic life. And they're just a few of the topics up for discussion at Civic Cocktail, the monthly event series produced by Seattle City Club and Crosscut, and broadcast on KCTS 9. For more than a decade, Civic Cocktail has been connecting community leaders from Seattle and the state of Washington to the public through lively conversations about the most important issues facing the region. And you can be a part of that conversation. Join host Monica Guzman as she sits down with the people who help shape our civic life and asks the questions that help build a greater understanding of this place we all call home. To see what we're talking about next and to RSVP to the taping of the next episode, go to crosscut.com slash events.
0: I'm curious if you had to sort of cast your mind back, what would be like
2: your earliest memory. Of hmm. your dad. Oh, oh well, I'm not sure I want to share that. Okay. <laughs> My mother and father fighting. <laughs> That's one of the earliest memories, sadly, but uh, they were divorced when I was 5.
0: As I mentioned in the last episode, Peter Steinbrook was the youngest of his dad's four children. And Peter says they were pretty close. And for as long as he can remember, Peter spent as much time with his dad as he could. And the time they spent was often in the very places that Victor would ultimately work to preserve. Um, I would have to say
2: that the fond experiences that I I have of him and my time with him as a child were actually frequenting the Pike Place Market. I mean, that was like a wonderland for a child of wonderful food, smells, sights, sounds, etc., uh, just I- interesting people, you know, with diverse backgrounds from all over Japanese, Americans, Filipino, uh, you know, Italian. Um, and it, it was a fascinating place. Um, and I always loved to go there. It was never any arm twisting for me to go. Uh, and we, he would usually treat us with some specialty, like some apricot leather from De Laurenti's or the the Sopa de Camarone from the Copacabana restaurant and things like that you know that we just really loved and I I joined him on sketching outings Uh, he was working on his collection of sketches for his what became the market sketchbook that he published I forget what year that was I think it was 68 69 and um, also he loved parks as I do trees and parks, and so we would often frequent parks around the city and beyond the city, and that was always pleasurable, and once in a while we would go to an area with a little stream or something, and I'd bring a fishing pole along, and he'd sit and sketch things like
0: that. As a father, it sounds like Victor was both loving and creative, but as with his approach to his work and civic engagements, it seems he always had a clear point of view and a plan.
2: It wasn't like, oh, do you want to go play baseball today? It wasn't like that. Uh, it was more like, this is what we're doing today. So Sometimes it was just a Sunday drive. There was a thing of uh, back in those days of leisure driving. Now it's like politically incorrect to be leisure driving, <laughs> producing carbon emissions and wasting gasoline. But yeah, it was like touring around the city in the car. <laughs> and, and uh, looking at, you know, like bu- boulevards, Lake Washington Boulevard was a favorite place. And we'd stop there and have fish and chips down at the, mar- at the uh, yacht marina there in Leshai. And uh, occasionally bicycling. We did do fun things. It wasn't, all, it wasn't like any onerous thing that, oh, I got to go with that. Again, he's going to do some sketching. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It was, it was always fun. And bicycling around Green Lake, you know, those kinds of things. And looking at architecture. So I, I got my early education uh, in architecture and the urban environment, beyond just buildings that he thought were interesting, but the urban environment, the streetscapes, the, the, the cityscape, as he called it. And he wrote a book called Seattle Cityscape. That was his first book, actually. So he, that's how he, he looked at the city through his sketching. And you know, if you think about it, if you're spending like a couple of hours looking at a scene of an urban you know, cityscape, you're going to see things that you probably don't notice just passing through. <laughs> exactly. So it's a way of looking at things with a studied approach in a way. And I learned that early too.
0: Peter was kind enough to let me spend several hours grilling him about his childhood, about what he remembered about his dad and their relationship. It felt important to ask these things because, of course, that helped me understand Victor a little bit more. But also, the fact that this father and son were so close has had a real impact on the city of Seattle. Of all his siblings, Peter's life's work hews the most closely to Victor's. Peter became an architect, too. And he got very involved in Seattle politics. In some cases, he continued the civic battles Victor started.
4: In an interesting twist of fate, one of the champions for the market this time was Peter Steinbrook, son of Victor Steinbrook.
0: And so while the portrait Peter will paint of Victor in this series is colored by his love and admiration and sense of obligation to his dad, it's also the most intimate view we're likely to have of the man and his life outside of his work and one worth spending a little time on, I think.
2: I want to show you something, okay? You can bring your mic with you, okay? okay? Speaking (laughs) of a vision, so the earliest drawing I have of my father's, I'm gonna show it to you, okay? Oh, great. All right. He was five years old. And that's it right there.
4: Oh, wow.
2: Oops, sorry. And you see, there's the bay. I think those are trees. There's a steamship. Wow. And it's a little pencil, colored pencil sketch. And it, it's called, he wrote it onto it, first grade, Auburn, Washington, 1917 on the back. And he called it, I See a City.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I mean, that is very sophisticated for five years old. <laughs> I have to jump in here and correct us on this. If it says 1917 on the back of the drawing, that would have made Victor six years old at the time. But anyway, it's still very sophisticated for a six-year-old's drawing. It's mostly an image of water and sky, but it's got these small, dark buildings in the distance with a sense of scale and depth that you just don't see in most kid drawings.
2: It's it's quite impressionistic looking because it's just very lightly drawn. You know, it's uh, kind of interesting to speculate on what motivated him back then at that age.
0: Seems like your dad had um, obviously he was an architect and so much passion in that direction. Yeah. But he also mm-hmm. strikes me as an artist. Oh, and and
2: and yeah, and I haven't talked that much about it, but he was an artist before he was an architect. He was an artist in his youth. He, you know, he did the artwork in his school yearbooks, and he was he was painting uh, watercolors, pastels charcoals, well before he was an architect. In fact, that was his first passion, was to be an an artist. He valued art enormously, and I think he was, in some ways, somewhat frustrated at it. He, He wanted to be an artist.
0: And Victor did make art, even as he leaned more into architecture and urban planning. As Peter mentioned, he published a sketchbook of drawings of Pike Place Market in 1968. But before that, in 1962, he also published a book of black-and-white drawings called Seattle Cityscape, and then Seattle Cityscape Number 2 in 1973. It's as if he was always saying, at age six, and then over and over for the rest of his life, I see a city. He was
1: able to visually capture these elements of grassroots culture You know, pictures of vendors at the market, pictures of scenery, but he didn't pretty them up. You know, he'll show a view from, you know, Beacon Hill and there are telephone wires in the way. I mean, it's like the Seattle, the real Seattle, not the PR Seattle.
0: And it seems like that version of Seattle is the one he kept advocating for throughout the 60s. As he kept writing articles and doing interviews and speaking out against all these plans to tear it all down.
1: You know, Victor starts bringing, bringing up about the displacement of people. So, what do he say? Some civic-minded idealists have a vision of a time when government care would provide aid and appropriate environment for the Skid Road inhabitants, along with a restoration project which would bring old buildings back into the vital life of the city. And this is what Victor's promoting. You know, he's he's one of the idealists with this vision well he said the proposal as outlined is an inhuman sterile brutal project with vast parking lots and four colossal skyscrapers set atop a huge super block parking garages the existing street pattern is violently violated wow um and you know that we're that, that there's nothing in this plan that addresses the sociological issues
0: Victor wrote a similarly scathing critique of that 1963 Central Business District plan I mentioned earlier that we found stashed in his files. He says the so-called comprehensive plan for the Central Business District of Seattle should be discarded. It is not only unimaginative, inadequate, basically unsound, but destructive as well. Um, Number one, no alternate studies or proposals. Which, you know, like that's kind of amazing. We accept
2: that as a given now, don't we? Yeah. That there's going to be some alternatives to weigh against to, exactly,
0: to like it just preference. Just seems
2: yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm.
0: part of a, a, a process of, of getting, you know, public comment and having, like, wait, So we have these few options. But anyway, n- nothing else besides this. It was just like, here's the plan. <laughs> Number two. I sound pretty incredulous here because I was. Seattle today has a reputation for too much process. In fact, it's got a name. It's called the Seattle process. <laughs>
2: In a city that is notorious for its endless public process and its slow decision-making. This
0: 1963 way of doing things, this top-down, here's the plan kind of approach, it's antithetical to what we think of when we think of Seattle today. For me, learning this about 20th century Seattle was kind of a revelation. We'll go deeper on that a bit later. Number two, no involvement of the citizenry at large in the planning process. Number three, not adequate to its setting Number four, does not enhance downtown. Number five, uses questionable, unproven techniques such as irresponsibly placed malls. (laughs) Number six, destroys much of value, interest, and character in existing downtown, such as the market area, First Avenue, Pioneer Square. Number seven, traffic and parking proposals do not fit the future and are based on outdated data. Number eight, mass transportation proposals are irresponsible and unstudied. Uh, Number nine, no significant relation to waterfront. Number 10, no open space study or proposals. Number 11, Ring Road is inappropriate, restrictive, and constrictive. Number 12, no relation to Seattle Center. Number 13, no relation to First Hill residential area. Number 14, no survey or visual resources. Number 15, does not arouse the interest and enthusiasm of the public. Wow. (laughs) I don't think
2: you could go much farther (laughs) with that critique, could you? There's not much left unsaid there.
0: So Victor Steinbrook kept being a squeaky wheel. He got support from a couple of other architects, Paul Theory and Ralph Anderson, who also started to get interested in the buildings in Pioneer Square. Anderson, for instance, bought and rehabilitated several old buildings himself in an attempt to show the powers that be that there was value in their history. And as Knut Berger discovered in those old files Victor kept for so many years, Victor at least tried to do the same.
1: I was really interested to stumble across in the files a letter from Victor to a local attorney saying he wanted to buy the building of the Merchant's Cafe building, 109 Yesler Way. So it's like he's, he's he, he wants to be part of it.
0: On that note, I actually wanted yeah. to show you something I wondered mm-hmm. if you knew about. Okay. A handwritten letter... Mm-hmm. Um, from February 1969.
1: He says in this letter, I am not a typical investor. I am anxious to begin restoration of one building of Pioneer Square as an example to the rest.
0: In the context of wanting to support reinvestment instead of tearing down the whole neighborhood, Mm -hmm. um, he basically is offering to buy and renovate and reinvigorate the Merchants Café building.
1: And he doesn't have a lot of money. He's not like a big money guy. He's an, a professor, you know. Yeah, <laughs> February
2: My dad didn't have any money, so I don't know where he thought he was going to get the money Right, <laughs> professor's salary. One question we had. Um, <laughs> yeah, he probably would have gone to his friends or his wealthy friends and asked them for handouts.
0: Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, there you go. So you, so you didn't know about this idea?
2: No, no, mm-mm, no. The cafe with its liquor license has has potential for once again being a very special restaurant of good quality. I think a unique cafe catering to the office workers could be a success there as the area changes." Well, that's very interesting. You know, and the Merchants Cafe is, is claimed to be the oldest continuously operating uh, bar in, in, in the city.
0: But yeah, he says, the work is still in the planning stage, but I do expect it to become effective within the next two years. I would like to participate in it as an owner. For consideration, I would like to offer to purchase the property for $40,000, total with an initial payment of $5,000, and the balance to be paid in equal annual installments over a period of 10 years, with 8% interest to be paid annually on the unpaid balance. That's a Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. If this offer is acceptable, I would make arrangements for the initial payment uh, whenever desired, possibly with an earnest money argument. The thing is, nothing seems to have ever come of this particular offer, despite its being so specific about payment amounts and interest. So who knows? The mystery of that offer remains. But what Victor did later on in 1969 that seems to have had a greater impact on the Pioneer Square we know today. By that time, the public interest in the idea of historic places was much greater than it had been. The National Historic Preservation Act, for instance, marking federal interest in these ideas, had passed in 1966. So in 69, Victor Steinbrook conducted a formal survey of the neighborhood taking pictures and detailed notes on each of the buildings still standing.
1: So Victor was hired actually by the city in 1969 to do a survey of Pioneer Square, a formal, you know, survey.
0: And Peter remembers tagging along for some of that, a process that contributed to the creation of the official Pioneer Square Skid Road Historic District in 1970, the very first designation of its kind in Seattle.
2: I didn't know exactly what he was doing or what for. Uh, he probably told me at some point and explained it more clearly because, you know, what is a historic district? Well, how would I know, you know? <laughs> there weren't any. There were no historic districts. Um, and what did it mean and what was, why was it important? So as we walked the streets uh, block by, by block, and, and I wasn't there all throughout the whole thing, but I was occasionally, where he was photographing and documenting and recording in, individually the buildings in Pioneer Square that constitute now the historic district.
1: And he, they were able to then get use that historic study to get the city council to pass an, pass an ordinance in 1970 that saved Pioneer Square, essentially. And Victor also used that information to submit a National Register application, which was approved.
0: And so Pioneer Square was also made part of a National Register of Historic Places. And it's now one of eight historic districts and hundreds of historic landmarks across Seattle. Historic districts now include, for example, Ballard Avenue in Columbia City. And landmarks include the Space Needle and the Showbox. I think it's important here to emphasize again that Victor Steinbrook wasn't the only person fighting for historic preservation, or for Pioneer Square and the people who lived there. And his and others' efforts, they weren't the only forces at play, either. In Seattle in the late 60s and early 70s, you had another big event, and that was the collapse of the Boeing economy.
3: The Boeing company announced that they'd be laying off most of their workforce.
0: Seattle had been riding high on the rise of commercial air travel through the 60s. But when the market became oversaturated and sales started to decline, people lost their jobs, and a regional recession hit hard. Absolutely devastated the city of
3: Seattle and its economy.
0: And in the middle of a recession, the kind of rehabilitation that Victor envisioned was likely more appealing than full-on, tear-it-all-down urban renewal.
1: When the Boeing recession hits rehab is kind of all you have right because these grand plans become more problematic in the environment where the city's population is beginning to decrease the economy is uncertain and you know the recession continues into the early 70s and so his preservation message begins to ride on that economic message for both Pioneer Square and the Pike Place Market in terms of saying let's let's make what we have work better let's let's the small guys go in and instead of tearing down a whole bunch of buildings let's have a bunch of people repair one building each you know uh-huh. let's make this more of a populist grassroots thing and that really fit uh, the time
0: It's true that in 1969 and 1970, at the very same time Victor Steinbrook was working on saving Pioneer Square, he was also toiling away at the most urgent part of his biggest, most relentless fight yet, the fight to save Pike Place Market.
3: On an area of the city that does need, does need help and uh, does need improvement, but the question is whether it needs this drastic, drastic thing that uh, is proposed under the present urban renewal plan. We don't believe it does.
0: To this day, that fight resulted in Victor's greatest victory and greatest legacy. And the one he passed on most directly to his son, Peter.
2: Um, from that point on, I kind of felt like the mantle of, you know, saving Seattle had just landed on me, on my back.
0: And knowing Victor, it could sometimes come at a bit of a cost.
1: And I think he liked leading rather than following. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some things in the files, you know, where he's really arguing for his sort of nothing goes out without my say-so kind of thing.
0: That's next time on Crosscut Reports. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Knut Berger and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. Editorial assistance from Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Audio engineering by Rusty Bacall. Special thanks, of course, to Peter Steinbrook for all his help with this series. Also, a big thanks to Jenna Martin, CrossCut's associate photo editor, who photographed and scanned a lot of documents from Victor Steinbrook's files and who tracked down some additional archival images that really bring this story to life. To see all of those images, as well as an essay from Knut about this episode's discoveries, follow the link in the show notes. Or you can go to crosscut.com podcasts and click on CrossCut Reports. There's also a place on the story page where you can weigh in with your own thoughts on the legacy of Victor Steinbrook. You can subscribe to CrossCut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. This is a new show for us, and we want to know what you think. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS-9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.